Thank you, team. Great to worship the Lord. Before we go any further, let's pray. Holy Father, we bow before you. We wait for you. For you to speak to our hearts, to our minds. We look to you, Father, to change us. To make us into better reflections of the Lord Jesus. So, Father, we open your word. and We ask that you would speak to us. that you would speak through your servant, that your name and the name of the Lord Jesus may be exalted in our midst. And we give you our thanks in his precious name. Amen. As we open the scriptures, and especially this morning, We're continuing the series in the Gospel of John. A couple of things we need to remember. First, the Bible has been given to us. We have inherited it. And how blessed we are to have it so readily available in a language we can understand, in formats we can easily use. I mean, quite a number of us have many versions of the Bible in our pocket, on our phones, on our tablets. And we have the good old-fashioned paper kind as well. This Bible is an amazing book. It was created over quite a number of centuries by numerous authors writing in at least three different languages, writing in different parts of the world. Of all the ancient writings, it is the best attested. And everywhere it has been possible to test its accuracy about events and people, it has come up without fault. Now, there have been some suggestions, mostly based on silence, that maybe it's not quite the book we've been led to believe, but the truth is that it is a trustworthy collection of documents. We can trust it in spite of what the critics might say. The second thing we need to keep in mind is that this book, that the creation and the preservation of this book was not without purpose. From beginning to end, it was uh, mandated for a reason. From the, from the very 
earliest writing, and there's debate whether Genesis or Job is the first, right through to Revelation. The purpose of the Scriptures are to bring us into a living, dynamic relationship with God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then once we have entered into that relationship to, do, to teach us to do what that relationship requires, to reflect the very nature of God, His character, in everything we do, in everything we say, in everything that we are. It has been noted in, I think, every message in this series that John clearly spells out his particular purpose at the end or toward the end of his gospel. In John uh, 20, verses 30 and 31, he says, as a kind of a summary, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. In other words, what we have in our hands is a number of carefully selected incidents chosen to help us to engage Jesus and to know Him. So with these purposes in mind, let's open our passage to John chapter 4, beginning at verse 43. If you're using the, uh, the brown Bible in the, in the back of the chair there, it's on page six, 1653. John chapter 4 and verse 43. After the two days, he departed from Galilee, for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. For they too had gone to the feast. So he came to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. At Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. 
This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Jesus and his disciples had traveled through Samaria, an area where respectable Jews never traveled, because he had appointments with many people there, especially in the city of Sychar. And I'm thinking it must have been a puzzling experience for the disciples seeing Jesus freely interact and teach the Samaritans, people with whom they had been taught from childhood not to associate with. Even more surprisingly, Jesus had willingly stayed there two days, which meant that he had to sleep with them. He had to eat with them. And unlike the people of Jerusalem, these Samaritans responded not so much to miracle as to the word of Jesus. And they saw him as the Savior that he is. But now they're back on the road to Galilee. And what is it that John interjects? After two days, he departed for Galilee. And then, verse 44, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. In the other Gospels, the phrase is found, the same phrase is found on the lips of Jesus. But in the other Gospels, Jesus is responding to the way that the Galileans respond to him. He's referring to that. And they rejected him because they couldn't see that their hometown boy could have anything noteworthy to say that they had not already heard. I mean, after all, he didn't go away to study. He was a local boy. They knew him. They knew his family. They knew... Everything he did, he hadn't left the area since he was a young child. But here, in John's Gospel, Jesus uses the same phrase and he seems to be referring to Jerusalem. Jesus apparently left Jerusalem because the controversy was heating up, but his hour had not yet come. He had other people to teach, others to heal before that time. And Jerusalem, the center and representative of Judea, represented his own who did not receive him. And although he had presented his credentials in Jerusalem, he knew that the Galileans would not receive him with much greater favor. And yet, in Galilee, he encountered his own townsfolk who had been in Jerusalem and had watched as Jesus cleansed the temple and had witnessed the sign works he had done. They were eager to see the same kind of spectacle repeated in their own area. The problem was that 
For most of them, Jesus was something of a traveling circus. Entertaining to watch, but not to be taken too seriously. Well, the first stop in the region of Galilee was in Cana, where John reminds us that Jesus had turned the water into wine. But news of his arrival in the area traveled pretty fast, I expect. And just a couple of days later, a breathless man arrived from Capernaum and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now, this wasn't just any man. This was a royal official. He was a member of Herod's court. And he was used to power and authority. And he'd tried everything. Can you imagine the state of this man? Now, I'm guessing here. But I imagine the story went a bit like this. His son got sick, and he thought, well, I'll pay for the best doctor, and we'll get this sorted out. The doctor came. The doctor failed. His son got worse. So he pulled a few strings and got the king's own physician. Still no improvement. Instead, his son got worse. Where did he turn? Well, maybe he had a contact at the imperial court who could put him in touch with the best of Roman medicine. Surely the Romans could sort this out. But they could not. By now, his son was on his deathbed. Can you put yourself in the shoes of this otherwise powerful man who has simply come to the end But rumor had it that there was a miracle worker in Cana. And because all the other resources had dried up, there was nothing for it but to go to Cana. Now, it would have taken this father away from his son's bedside for a few days because Cana was something like 30 kilometers away. And the trip to Capernaum or from Capernaum to Cana, was uphill all the way. About, I'm told, told about 1,200 feet difference in elevation. So it's quite a climb. But he was desperate. Now there's something hidden in the Greek text that I think the New International picks up. Um, according to John, this nameless official did not just ask he asked and asked and asked and kept on asking. He begged Jesus to come down and heal his son. And what kind of an answer did he get? Verse 48. Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Wow. Why would he respond to the agonizing, agonized father's plea? 
with, in such a cold-hearted manner. How could he? We need to read it in context. Let's go back a little bit. Why had Jesus left Jerusalem? In John 2, in verse 23, we read, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And when he came to Galilee, what did John record? When he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. How? Because they saw all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. Because they too had been there. So that's the context of Jesus' remark. The Galileans were in the same state that, as most of the citizens of Jerusalem. They had rather liked the circus act that Jesus had performed. But again, there's something missing in the English translation. Because there is no English distinction between you, singular, and you, plural. That is, unless you're maybe in the southern states. Y'all, you got it. So, for those from the southern states, what Jesus might said might be translated as, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. This distraught father was one of this class of people, people who could not see beyond the miracles to the one to whom they pointed. He was one of the crowd who just wanted to see another wonder, in this case, the healing of his son. I don't want to be too hard on him, because he did have faith to that point. He was not a full-blown faith, but at least he had turned toward Jesus. Albeit out of desperation, but also out of love for his boy. And Jesus is the only one who could help. But you can almost hear the distress in his voice as he responds to Jesus' rebuke. Sir, come down before my child dies. It's almost as if his father is pleading. Sir, I do not have time. My boy does not have time for me to debate theology with you. Just come down before my child dies. It's the cry of the desperate. The cry of a father who could not take no for an answer. And Jesus responded 
but in a manner that would test and stretch this man's faith. This father trusted Jesus to be a miracle worker. Would he trust his word as well? Jesus was testing him. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Literally, what Jesus said is, Go, your son lives. Present tense. Take a close look at the situation. We don't know who this man was. He might have been a Jew. He might have been a Gentile. But he had no claim on Jesus. In fact, he was rebuked by Jesus. But Jesus Jesus responded out of grace. Pure, undeserved love. The man started with only hope-so faith and desperation. But even that was met by the grace of the Almighty God. And in that moment, this royal official apparently saw the truth about Jesus. Jesus was not some shaman wrestling with the spiritual powers. He didn't work up a sweat trying to conjure up a healing. He didn't just engage with the mighty power of death. He towers far above it. Go. Your son lives. I said it. It's so. And interestingly, there was no argument, no debate, no insistence that Jesus accompany him. Somehow, the man was satisfied and took Jesus at his word because the royal official suddenly realized he was not just dealing with an amazing man here. Jesus is the one who speaks and it comes to be. Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9, we read, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. For He spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That's what the Creator does. He speaks, and it happens. Let there be light, and there was light. He speaks realities into existence. Genesis 1 doesn't say, let there be light, and then he went off and made light. The speaking and the making are not two different things. He speaks, and it immediately comes to be. That's the mark of the Creator, the Word of God. And here is Jesus. Even in the face of that great enemy, death, he's not phased. He doesn't work up a sweat, he doesn't even pray. 
He's not calling on a higher power because He is the higher power. Here's the one the whole of the Old Testament has been proclaiming. The Messiah who makes the blind see and the lame walk, who restores heaven to earth. The Messiah does it by the Word of the Lord. And that's why this royal official, this father desperate for his son, took Jesus at His Word. He recognized in Jesus the absolute trustworthiness of the Creator God. And faith was born. Not the faith in the miracle, but in the One who has the power to do it. A day or so passed. The man was hurrying back to see his son when he saw down the road his servant coming toward him. I can imagine that his heart sank. They must be bearing bad news. But he was wrong. They were carrying the incredibly good news that his son was alive and well. And when he checked with them about when it had happened, he discovered that it was the same moment when Jesus spoke. Now, not only was the man and his family convinced that Jesus is a miracle worker, not only had they learned to trust His Word, but now they were beginning to see beyond their immediate circumstance, beyond the miracle, beyond even the Word that Jesus spoke, to see Jesus as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, and specifically as Lord of life and death. And that is the point of miracle. That is the principal point that John wants us to get. Jesus is far, far more than we expect Him to be. He doesn't fit into our neat categories. He is God the Son. And that's why He can do the things that John recorded Him doing. Things that only God can do. We talk about miracle. And frankly, I get uneasy when I hear or see advertisements for a miracle healing service. Now, I believe without question that our Lord does heal, that He does deliver in the same way that the Gospels and the Acts record. He does it today. I've witnessed it. I expect Him to respond to prayer. But we need to remember that He is absolutely sovereign. 
And he has made no New Testament promises of physical health or healing. Or, for that matter, of material prosperity. So to attempt to corner God and to require Him to respond in any specific manner is presumptuous at best. Besides that, when we try to manipulate Him, and especially when in His grace He actually responds in the way we expect Him to, it's so easy to be swept away with the excitement that we fail to see the Lord Jesus as anything more than a miracle worker. But miracle is intended by God to point to Jesus as Savior and as Lord. He alone is Lord of all the earth. He alone rules the nations. He alone speaks. And it's done. The answer is prayer. Not always the way we expect. He's intimately aware of all your circumstances. He's even counted the hairs on your head. So we can be assured of His loving response to our prayer and our need. Remember that however difficult the situation might be, in His sovereign grace, He will provide. He will strengthen. And He will deliver you through it, if not from it. But His grace can never be earned. It is never deserved. Or it would not be grace. Sometimes it's tough to believe without seeing. We all have times when in desperation we beg, we shout, we plead for Jesus to just do something. Sometimes we get what we ask, more or less immediately. But more commonly, we need to take Him at His word to trust Him when we have little evidence. This father had to do just that. There was no evidence to suggest that his son was healed. Now, he didn't have it. He had to take Jesus at his word and trust that he spoke truth. But Hebrews 11 reminds us that we might never see many of God's most precious promises fulfilled during our earthly lifetimes. But that fact does not mean that our God does not keep His Word. Here's some homework for you. Take a careful look at this passage for yourself. Put yourself in the story. Where are you? Which character seems most like you right now? 
Are you in the crowd just a curious bystander eager to be entertained by Jesus? Are you one of the disciples still puzzling over Jesus' word of rebuke and hoping that you are not included in it? Are you like the Father making his appeal to Jesus, desperate for him to intervene in your situation? Are you receiving the grace of God, trusting Jesus to do the right thing, even if that right thing is not what you think you want? Do you recognize Jesus for who and what he is? God, the Son, your Savior, your Lord, Lord of all creation. If you're like the Father, just coming to recognize Jesus as Savior, if you want to know more about Him, perhaps want to speak with Him yourself, pray with us. And may I suggest that you linger and... uh, There's any number of people here who would be delighted to introduce you to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for caring, for loving us, for bringing us close. Lord, speak to our hearts as only you can. Speak to our hearts and help us to trust you more. Hold us close, Father. You know the the tough times we're experiencing. And Lord, help us to trust your grace. Draw us close that we might know Jesus better. And we give you our thanks in his precious name. Amen. Team.